And you just given me this thought that if you take this top, you know, the best sales rep and you pair them with a writer, you're ready to produce product-led content forever. Because what I found, you know, to create really good, convincing and helpful product-led content, you need in-depth knowledge of your product. You're listening to Content Logistics, a podcast for B2B marketers looking to build a content engine that drives revenue. In each episode, Camille Trent interviews the marketers behind the best content marketing flywheels and uncovers the tactical aspects of content production from first draft to first customer. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Content Logistics. I'm your host, Camille Trent, and I'm the head of content here at Dooley. We are the fastest way to update Salesforce and also the smartest way to take sales notes. This episode is brought to you by my good friends, Tristan and Justin. They're over at Motion Agency, and they produce this podcast. So if you like this podcast or you like any of the teasers that that I've had for it, they're the ones doing that. It's not me at all. So um, go check them out if you're planning on starting a podcast. Today, our guest is Theo Dosetto. She's the editorial lead at Wildbit and the editor-in-chief at Content Folks. And today, uh, we're talking about the logistics of product-led content. Okay, so Theo, thank you for joining us. And if you could just give a little bit of background on on yourself and how you found product-led content. Yeah, of course. And thank you for inviting me. As you said, I am currently the editor at uh, Wildbit. But before this, a few years back, I was working for a company called Hotjar, which does behavior analytics and product insight software. And that's really where I discovered product-led content because I was part of a very small and very new content team. And we were trying to figure out what to do to grow this business through content. And that's where we found uh, an interesting approach, which I will tell you about. Nice. Okay. So that's a perfect segue. What is product-led content? And if you could give just a little definition and maybe a good example. We'll give a definition, but listen, I think for the folks who are listening, product-led content is really easy to define and to talk about when you're looking at it. So if this was a, a video call or you know, if we had some artifacts to look at, it would be immediately clear what isn't product-led content. So instead for everybody who's listening, uh, I'm going to give you a definition, but if you don't mind, I'm going to come at it completely sideways. And we're just going to take a detour and we're going to talk about the movies for a minute because I think it works really well as a point of comparison. So... There are different ways that a product can be seen in a movie. There are sort of three different levels of product exposure, if you want. So let's say a food processor like a KitchenAid. There's what we can call level one, where the KitchenAid is just kind of there in the background. Like, you know, there's a scene in the apartment and the characters are there. And just there in the background on a shelf, you've got your KitchenAid. You can blink and miss it because it's not part of the story and your attention is not directly directed to it, if you want. Then there is a level two, where instead your attention is now actively directed towards this KitchenAid. For example, one of the characters is next to it and moves it or makes a comment about it or just looks at it directly. And now your attention is onto this KitchenAid. And then there is a level three, where your KitchenAid is becoming an integral part of the story. So for example, I don't know, you have a character who's invited people over for dinner, but something goes wrong. They are super delayed. And now it looks like it's going to be a disaster. They only have a couple of hours to feed this group of people. And now the KitchenAid is there to solve the problem brilliantly. And you have a montage of how it works. You see how it does, how it chops, how it mixes, how whatever it is, and how it helps save the dinner. And so the KitchenAid as an integral prop point, and it's speaks to a job that the character needs to do and it speaks to the resolution of this problem that the character had. 
And in the same way, you can present content in different ways. You can sort of have a level one blink and you miss it mention, perhaps an internal link that doesn't really even necessarily talk about the product. But if you happen to notice and click it, you might be taken to a landing page. You can have a level two mention whereby maybe you get to the bottom of the content piece and your attention is directed to the product because there is a CTA and now you're still realizing that you know the company writing the piece is actually doing a product. Or there is a level three way of showcasing your product in the context of your piece. So, you know, the product is an integral part of the story. It's a plot point of your content. It's presented as the go-to solution to a very specific problem. You see it in action, maybe with screenshots annotated. And then it, you understand by reading this piece how the product relates to a job that you need to do and how it helps you solve that particular problem or pain point. And that's sort of the definition of product-led content then it's a content piece that strategically weaves a product into the narrative and uses it to illustrate a point, solve a problem, and or help you accomplish a goal. That's great. Like I love the three different levels of it too, because it's really just getting deeper, right? It's like getting deeper through different types of mediums. And it reminded me of back uh, in, I think, middle schools when I first learned about this, but the different learning styles, right? Like, so some people learn from audio. Some people learn better through text. Some people learn better through visuals. And most people though, like learn best by doing right through like kinesthetic learning. Mm -hmm. And so having like those different mediums, like weaved throughout the content, like having the visuals and having the video and having the screen grabs as well as the text, like not that the text is not important, but you're just not able to explain as well or explain to those different learners in the same way. That's, I feel like a big value of product-led content is just being able to get it because you're able to use different types of mediums. Yeah. And I think I actually really never thought about it like that until this very moment. And it makes a lot of sense. I think this is also why it's kind of difficult to talk about it on a podcast, because as I was saying, it's very easy when you have, you know, you have your written words and you have maybe a small GIF that shows you how the product works when you click on something and then you have an annotated screenshot and it all together combines to give you a sense of, what this product looks like, what it could do for you. And you can maybe even envision yourself starting to use it because you're sort of becoming familiar with the interface, even if you haven't actually signed up for a product yet. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Because I had another class that was uh, like technical writing and you weren't able to like use any pictures or use any Ooh. visuals. <laughs> and you find like how difficult it is to explain something like with pure text, not able to use any voice inflection either. And so... When you explained it that way, and I've heard you explain it in the past, but that was the first time I was like, oh, this is why. It's because like we're able to integrate different mediums and appeal to different types of learning styles. And then at some point, like maybe it's the text, maybe it's the video, maybe it's that one screen grab. Like one of those things is going to stand out and be a, an aha moment for different people. So yeah, so speaking of aha moments, what was your aha moment with product-led content? Like how did you know that this was the way to go? So I think there are two types of aha moments here. The first one is actually realizing that this was even a thing or an option or something that we could do, which is a separate, but probably a larger aha moment than the moment where we realized this was actually gonna work for us. So I'll talk about the latter first. In our early content days at Hotjar, and I'm talking way back in 2017, we always publish good content, but what we publish would get good feedback and get traction and decent views as soon as we publish it and launched it on social media. But then there wasn't a larger distribution plan after that. So we'd send these things out. We would have a spike of attention. And then after a few days, if you're familiar with the concept of the spike of hope, 
and the flat line of NOPE, you would see that the spike did actually not correspond to any sort of long-term growth and instead very quickly, but very obviously the content would start to not be seen by anybody anymore. And so obviously this was not a good way or a sustainable way to use content to grow a business. And so we refocused on a strategy where we would try to make these short-term efforts compound into long-term growth. And then we found SEO, which we picked as our distribution method, and we applied this product-led key or layer on top of it, if you want. And we committed to this approach and we really worked really hard. And as you probably know, SEO doesn't have immediate results. so. There was nothing for a while, and then there were small bumps after three or four months, and there was larger jumps after six months, and then we had finally hocustic style growth for you know a year after that. And so that was, I think, the aha moment was after three or four months, we started seeing bumps and blips on our radar, and we started thinking, okay, so this is going to work. We just need to put in a lot more work for a lot more time. And yeah, that's actually what happened. But of course. If you had asked us after the first month to measure ROI in this new approach, we couldn't. We would have had to call it a failure because there was really nothing to show for except for the fact that we were publishing content. That was it. But it's after three or four months when this content started having views disconnected or unrelated to us pushing it on social media that we thought we were onto something. And that's the story with SEO. I think you know that's a very common situation to find yourself in after a few months of publishing optimized content. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it also kind of helps redefine the aha moment for me, right? Because I think that is the process that you go through with any content strategy of, okay, I can see the merit to this. I can see that it worked for other people, right? Like I can understand like why it could work, but then you still have to prove that it works for your organization, right? And oftentimes that means like being patient, right? And seeing it out for at least enough time to just to know like if it's just the time, if it's the process, if it's the org, like what is it that you need to wait for? So there is plenty of success stories about SEO, but I think what also is really important is that you have buy-in from your leadership because just because there are a lot of success stories outside doesn't mean that leadership is comfortable or confident in your ability to replicate it. And so in our particular case, they understood what we wanted to do and they did back the plan and they gave us the freedom to do what we were trying to do, even if after the first one or two months we had technically nothing to show for, but they trusted us and that was really lucky. I think not all content teams are in such a position. They are asked to prove results much sooner um, which is tricky if you're using SEO because it takes time. Yeah, that's a good point too. So in the marketing team, like, were you able to balance that out with another sector of marketing that was working on more of like the direct results? Or was it something that was like, we can sit tight for a few months? We can sit tight for a few months. We were a very small team. We were two people. So we wanted to focus on one thing and do it properly instead of trying to do multiple things, especially coming from the flatline of nope, sort of spike of hope scenario where we had tried a lot of things that were not really compounding or growing in the direction that we wanted to. So we sat tight for more than two months, I'm going to say for like six at least, and it worked. Yeah, that right there like needs to be a clip or at least a takeaway for people (laughs) of like doing one thing really well is far better than doing a lot of things okay. That's just how it works, like compound interest that way. But okay, so when is it appropriate to talk about the product? Like, is there any scenario where you think product-led content is not necessarily a good strategy? 
So this is a tricky question because it depends. This is the marketer's answer to you. It depends on what the product is. It depends on what you want your content strategy to do, like what you're trying to do for your business. So for example, you know, if you're trying to bring back a lot of traffic, you can also do that without ever mentioning your product. I personally don't think that's the best way to utilize the traffic that you're getting back to you. But, you know, if you wanted to, technically speaking, you could just never mention a product that have a million views a month. I don't know that would do much for your business. It wouldn't have done much for ours, but there may be scenarios in which it works. I think, obviously, when you're talking about B2B and software, it's easier if you're using visual media, just as we were saying before, because a screenshot, a video, a GIF can go a long way. So if this is the primary type of content that you're producing, that's you're probably fine. If you're a podcast producer, probably you can still talk about your product in it as part of the podcast, but it might become a bit more laborious or trickier for you to communicate this and for your audience to understand it. Hence me using the KitchenAid example on this podcast, because I think it's, it's just easier to visualize. In an addition, it's very easy to see a screenshot of the dashboard of a piece of software. If your product is a service, that still might work across different formats. You can still talk about your products and maybe it works even better, including audio, because you can talk about the process, etc it's maybe much easier to visualize that than a complicated software interface. So to go back to your question, I think you know there are a lot of channels that are good candidates for product-led content. It also depends on what you're trying to do with your content in the first place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so just to recap kind of for listeners, this strategy is proven, I would say, for SaaS B2B, like specifically with Ahrefs and Hotjar being good examples of that because of the visual nature of the product. So not that you can't do it with a podcast and certainly Motion is a agency, right? Like they're a content agency, so they do services, but they have these different podcasts, right? And so in a lot of ways, they're doing this, like they're doing this like product-led content approach because what they do, the service they provide of creating podcasts, that's what we're doing right now. And so it's kind of like a way to show how it works. And like I mentioned, the trailer videos and the pull quotes and everything, like those are something that's done by them. And so just this whole play, like this whole podcast right here, like is an example of how that could work for service-based business too. So just to give people an idea of how you might use this, like for different products or for different services, those are a couple ways that I can think of. So if you had some other examples of companies that you look at that you're like, this company is nailing it, like they're doing product-led content to a T, anything that comes to mind? So there is a company which is actually a B2C. It's called fix.com. First of all, I love the fact that it's a three-word.com domain. I'm just, I'm a big fan of that. So it's a Canadian e-commerce and they sell spare parts for electrical appliances. And they have this wonderful YouTube channel where they actually teach you how to use the spare part to do your own home repairs. And then through it, so they're teaching you what to do. And they also offer you the, the product because you can buy it through them and they're educating you. And it's just wonderful. I think this is my favorite B2C content example I've found of a product-led approach. So I recommend taking a look. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take a look at that one. I love getting inspiration like from B2C and even like D2C type brands like for B2B in part because most B2B companies are not doing it. Like B2B is slower to adapt some of the just technologies, strategies, all of that. And so if you can have an open mind to be looking out for those strategies 
in businesses that aren't identical to yours. Cause I think we'll, as marketers get in this rut of, okay, I need to find like the perfect example that relates to us so that I can better explain it, you know, to the board or to executives of why this is going to work for us. But if you can take like the best parts of a bunch of different things, like I think that's where the magic is because you can do like a totally different thing. Absolutely. And to add to this, I think I actually learned of fix.com. I think at some point I was looking how to fix something. I'm in the wrong country. So they're in Canada. I'm in the UK. It was never going to work, but they ranked so well and they had such a comprehensive thing. So it's not just that they're creating content for their own customers they rank they're solid on youtube uh, particularly so you stand to find them if you ever want to fix something in your own home and i think it also helps again if you think about it in your own b2b way they are really successful at bringing traffic consistently because they are solving a problem and this is exactly what you as a b2b content marketer are gonna want to do anyway you want to solve a problem for your customers it doesn't matter if you're doing it with like screws from fix.com or with a piece of software the point is you know, the customer has a job or they need to do or a problem they want to solve. You have the solution and you're creating content to intercept it. That's great. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is, so our company is based in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about how if you do one thing in marketing really well, like you mentioned, people start talking about it because it's so much better than everything else out there. Right. So fix.com like might be a good example in that now they've earned the word of mouth from you, right? You're talking about it. You can't even necessarily use their services. But then I know people in Canada, right? And so it might be top of mind for me to talk to them slash they might hear about it on this podcast. Like if you do one thing really well in marketing, and that could be product-led content, that could be like Gong is an example that I bring up a lot because I love what they're doing on LinkedIn and how they've just owned that space and went all in on, on a few different things that have really worked out for them. And because of that, they've just earned a lot of word of mouth. And so I think that's another thing to take from this is if you do this well, and product-led content is a great example because it is like this pillar play. It's this like long form, like it does take a lot to do it well. But if you do it well, like you earn other types um, of marketing as well. Like it takes care of the awareness side of things too. Yeah, I think it's a mutual reinforcing thing. Yeah, for sure. It just fuels the whole thing. Like it's a flywheel effect after that. So let's get into kind of how we actually do this. So how do you prioritize product-led content? I've heard you talk a little bit about Tim Solo's uh, content process and how you adapted that for Hotchar. And I'd love for you to, to talk about that a little bit and then just your adaptation from there. Yeah, for sure. And earlier on, you asked me about my aha moment. And I mentioned the first aha moment being the larger one of discovering that this was even a thing. And so this comes at the right point. I watched a course called Blogging for Business back in 2017, produced by Team Sulu of Ahrefs, in which they introduced us to a business prioritization framework, if you want, whereby they would assign a score to every content idea that they had in their pipeline. They would assign a score from zero to three, zero being a topic or a piece of content where there was no way to mention the product. So in this case, it would be Ahrefs. So there was no way to link Ahrefs back to this. A score of one would be the product could be mentioned in passing. Score of two would be the product helps, but it's not essential. And a score of three is the product is an irreplaceable solution. And again, it speaks to it's the product is the best way to solve a problem or to help somebody execute their jobs to be done. And the general gist of that course or that particular section of the course was that to build and bring long-term traffic to your blog or to whatever it is that you're trying to grow, including a YouTube channel, for example, 
you want to gravitate towards topics that have a score of two or three because they allow you to talk about your product as part of, of the larger narrative. And so that was my aha moment in thinking, first of all, I never really thought about talking about the product like that. I wasn't trained to think like that. I hadn't really seen that many examples of that outside of Ahrefs again back then in 2017. So that was interesting to me. And that led me to start applying this score to every piece of content that came into the Hotjar pipeline. So I was the editor at that point and I could decide together with the content strategist which topics to prioritize. And so we turned this score from Ahrefs, we called it the Hotjar ability factor. And so for every piece that came my way, I would ask the simple question of Hotjarable is this, aka how much of the narrative can hinge on the product? How much can, you know, Hotjar be positioned as a central solution or as a central part of the solution to a potential customer's problem. And for every content piece where Hodger could realistically be used as the de facto solution for, you know, for a problem, we would assign a score of three and prioritize accordingly. And then we gravitated towards the threes and the twos, much like Tim Sulo suggested. Yeah, no, I think that's a great walkthrough of how people can get started on this. It also kind of supports, I feel like, what's becoming a secondary theme of this episode, which is just focus, right? If you can just focus <laughs> on the right things and find that intersection. So one of our sales reps the other day talked about what makes a great sales rep or what separates like a brilliant sales rep from an average sales rep. And so things that he mentioned, the top three things where top sales reps will understand the product better than anyone else on the team. And then the other thing was they're also going to understand the customer. And that also means like understand their day-to-day, understand their problem. And then uh, he's like, and then the third thing, maybe the most important thing is finding that intersection between them. Like they're able to connect that customer problem with like your product solution, right? That's kind of what this whole strategy is about, right? Is like finding that content product fit in a way of like, what can we talk about that only we can talk about? And that would make something a number three, right? This is like an irreplaceable solution that we solve for. That's like the type of content that you want to start with, because that's something that you can own, right? And you've just given me this thought that if you take this top, you know, the best sales rep, and you pair them with a writer, you're ready to produce product-led content forever. Because what I found, you know, to create really good, convincing and helpful product-led content, you need in-depth knowledge of your product. Pretty much like you were saying, like you need to be knowing the inside out of your products. You need to be one of the best people in the company to talk about it. And also you need in-depth knowledge of your customers and their pain points, because then you can address them by using the product, which is what, by the way, makes product-led content hard to do. And which is also why focusing on this one thing and trying to do it really well becomes so important because it's very hard to do it. Like it's very different from creating a piece of content and then adding a CTA at the bottom where you can say, try the product. It's different when you're actually weaving the product in and not just in a sort of passing mention of your product's top level functionality that everybody would know about by looking at the product page. But actually, when you know the inside out, you know the little tricks, you know the little things that other people haven't done or they have been incredibly successful for some customers that not everybody knows how to replicate. And that kind of knowledge, again, is not what a content marketer is usually expected to have. So in-depth product knowledge and in-depth customer knowledge 
is not that common. And particularly if your role is writer and you're not that exposed to either the product or the customers, it's really hard to then figure out how to weave the product in for some people who have very specific problems that you may not be aware of. Yeah, perfect. So this was actually another question that I had like queued up on here that you went into, like, what resources do you need to get this started? And so to recap some of the things that you'd said, it sounds like you need a writer, right? You need a sales team, you need to be talking to customers, and you need a subject matter expert. So that could be, you know, that could be the customer to some degree, that could be someone internally, but it seems like at a high level, those are all the things. So if you could talk more to that and maybe even the specific roles could be the roles at Hotjar or just in your ideal world, if you could build the ideal team for this, who would you need? Yeah, so I would say you definitely need the writer and hopefully the writer is also really knowledgeable about the product. So you're doing two things in one go, but that's very rare to find. You can use your sales team if you have one. Not all companies have one. So if you don't, you can also use customer support because they are actually the first ones hearing about problems and issues and stuff that is popping up. So if your organization is ample and complex, you might have salespeople, in which case, yeah, please go talk to them. If you have, you know, product people obviously know about the product. So It's starting to become this large operation where actually what you need is really good collaboration within different departments, or you can try to do it yourself and sort of, and in fact, I advocate that you try to do this. You try to talk to customers yourself. So you get an appreciation of your own, of what their main pain points are. You interview a couple of customers or you get in, if there are sales calls, you get in and you listen, or if there is customer success folks in your company, you can shadow them as well. You need all of that. And I think it's tricky again, and again, this goes back to why this is so hard to do, because if you have a brilliant writer, whether in-house or freelance, who doesn't know the inside out of the product and or the customer, they will write fantastic prose that will not really do much for you. So for example, I consider myself a relatively solid writer, but if I was to come and work for you in your team and you asked me to write some content, I would do a terrible job because I don't understand your product um, duly at all. I also don't know what the customers are, what they need, et cetera. And so it's really, obviously I would just write very shallow, but you know, perfectly written content that doesn't really help anybody. So that's when it becomes hard. And I found, for example, that it's hard to outsource this kind of content to freelancers because unless they have used your product before and so they can write competently about it, there are ways around. We tried agencies at Hotjar, we tried freelancers, we decided to bring somebody in-house. There is a lot of training that needs to happen on both the customer and the product to make this successful. So you asked me what I would need and I would say, a writer, if they can be independent and proactive, that's great. If not, they can interview somebody, they can interview experts and use that content to do the writing. That's fine. So that's pretty much what I would do. And of course, actually, side note, because we had picked SEO as our distribution method, you also want somebody to understand how to do that. So that's, you know, your efforts are going in the same direction. So again, if you structure your content in a solid enough way that it appeals to the engine because it has to, but it actually speaks human and speaks to real problems. And so you want that element in there somewhere as well. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So was that the content strategist at Hotjar or was there a separate SEO resource? So back then there was a strategist. I was the editor. We worked together. We also had an agency to support and 
support us with SEO. And then we worked with freelancers and then we decided to bring somebody in-house because we, we decided to make a bet and to sort of train somebody in the specificities of the product and the customer that would stay with us. And then they themselves could then handle more freelancers, et cetera, which is exactly what's happening. So this person that we hired as a writer is now there being the managing editor and doing a brilliant job of teaching freelancers exactly what it is that they need to write competently about Hotjar. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I think you've also kind of described like why content fails, why content marketing Mm -hmm. fails in two ways. So one, just, yeah, if you're not able to go as deep because you're not leading with this product-led content approach, so that's part of it. But then it's also just how to prioritize it within the org. Like, is it something that can be outsourced? Can it not be outsourced, right? If it is outsourced, what do you need to make that successful? And so I talked to a couple other content marketers to get like some ideas just for myself and you know, also just taking from my own experience, like what I think is going to work best, for instance, at Dooley. And some things that kind of stood out to me is one content marketer, Josh, who used to be at ClickUp, he was talking a little bit about his process. And I would say that he does kind of a product-led content approach. But when he outsources content, he doesn't expect the writer to necessarily know the product as well as he does. And so he mm-hmm. expects to like go in and edit a lot of that stuff. And for instance, he gave the example of if you're doing a best of tools kind of piece, this is a good example, then the writer is a good resource to be able to round up the rest of the tools, right? But then he would go in to talk more in depth about their specific tool and their specific advantages in there, right? And then they would lead with that. That would be like the majority I would get like a bigger real estate than maybe the other tools would get. But that is kind of like a way that you could marry both of if you need more top of funnel or more highly accessible writing in there, then that's something you can more easily outsource. But then the product knowledge is something that you at least need to budget in extra, extra editing time in for, right? For you to be able to do it justice. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was um, I talked to Alina Benny, who is at Nextiva and is like their SEO content lead. So she's great. And I kind of, got her opinion on this. And she was saying that she'd rather outsource top of funnel writing like uh, long form blogs than copywriting too. So because like the copywriting tends to be more about the product. And so it depends, like, I think the ratio of product in the content, right? But like the higher that ratio is like, the more you're probably going to need somebody in house, or at least like, a little bit of handholding, like when you're first launching this type of process. So I'd love to get your thoughts on any of those and like what's worked best for you since you guys did end up bringing in a writer in-house eventually. Yeah, I think you made a very good point and Alina does too, which by the way, I love her work. And in fact, we talked when I was still at Hodra, I used to be on calls with her to talk SEO and talk shop because <laughs> she has a lot to teach me. But yeah, I think you made a valid point that the more you want the product to be in the piece, the more you need to either budget for your edits to come in or you need to do something like expect that, you know, if the person is not competent, you need to budget for it. Or if the person is competent in the product, then you're good. So I think it it depends. The thing with product-led content, I would say, is that even a long-form piece about what you may want to call top or middle of the funnel can become entirely product-led if you're following that hot durability approach or the Ahrefs approach. So I'll give you an example to explain what that means. We, at some point at Hotjar, we had a customer interview. And in the course of this interview, this customer explained to us how they had used one of the tools in Hotjar, which is a survey tool, to collect information about the people who were visiting their website and to create user personas 
out of it. Now, there are two ways that you can use this kind of information. One of them could be doing what you would probably call a bottom of the funnel piece called how to use Hotjar to do user personas. Or you can go higher up the funnel and create a piece about user personas that weaves Hotjar into the narrative as an example of how personas are done. And this is the approach that we took. So we took the latter one where we went after the concept of user persona, which is obviously much, much larger. And we wrote a guide to the creation of personas. And in this guide, woven into it, there are examples of what Hotjar looks like, what kinds of questions you can use it for. There's actually practical examples from the customer and the literal questions that they asked and what their own persona looked like. And this is a really long form piece of content that you cannot really do without talking about Hotjar anyway. So that's really interesting because again, you can give it off to a freelancer and they may know everything there is to know about user personas, but if they never use Hotjar, they're not gonna know how to insert it into it in the first place. And so this is where the handholding comes in and the budgeting for extra time is a really good tip as well. Yeah, no, I, I love that example because it does talk to how important framing is like for content. It's kind of the same thing, right? If, of user personas with hot jar versus, you know, doing user personas, right? But because you're framing it up as, you know, how to do user personas, whatever it was, instead of like user personas with hot jar, like thinking about what you would click on. And if you wouldn't click on, you know, some branded thing, how to but you would click on like, you know, how to learn this thing. And if it happens to include something about the software and, and it works, you know, like it, it makes sense it's for it to be woven in there because it is a real solution, then that's something you're more open to. But if you're leading like very salesy, like that might be like where it fails because again, like the, the headline, if you don't get it right, like you don't get the person into the content and you need the person to read the content to realize that it's good. And so it's kind of like uh, getting those things right too. So that was a little bit of a light bulb moment for me of uh, the framing being important to like how you're introducing product-led content. Yeah. And I think SEO gets a bad reputation sometimes and people think of SEO content and they think of these dry pieces with no personality and just there to hit keywords and nothing else. But actually we took an editorial approach. So in addition to doing sort of product-led optimized content, we try to weave our point of view into it quite obviously. So we were an opinionated bunch and we tried to marry it all together. So even this piece about user personas, actually, I think something, I think the title was something like how to create user personas in four steps without leaving your desk. But in the very beginning, we were just trying to dispel the myth that you need to spend tons of money and tons of time doing personas you know, there is a different approach you can use. And we did that with everything. So even if things were optimized, you would always see the personality come through. So we did that with like market research. Again, we tried to dispel the myth that market research needs to be this big thing. You can just get started and take the first step. And then we did a whole guide about it. Customer testimonials, company values, like everything. You could always recognize this piece. And I think this is the other important thing to mention. You can always recognize this piece as coming from Hotjar because it's not just that you're seeing Hotjar everywhere as it is, but because there is a specific brand personality that is shining through. So it's not your dry, your functional Wikipedia-like entry about user personas, but it's opinionated and it's human, which I think is very important. And I wanted to make sure to mention this. 
Yeah, thanks for bringing that up too, because that was really good. Like, I can almost see like the formula for that headline. And then if you can start with that, but then as you said, like put more personality in it so you can feel like the brand in it, then that's like the perfect headline. So for instance, how to is obviously like, farther down the funnel, or at least they have higher intent, usually like they're doing that thing right now, they want to learn how to do that thing. So like the how to part of it. And then the topic itself, right, like aligning with, you know, something that your audience cares about something that your product solves. So in this case, user personas, and so topic, but then also the feature too, which is something interesting that you brought up of, you can do this in four steps with our product. Like you don't say with our product and that part is in the actual content itself, but you're kind of teasing it at the beginning of, if you know about the different products, there's only maybe one product that does it in four steps. And for other SaaS tools that might be do X, Y, Z in one click or whatever it is, right? And so kind of like teasing the product a little bit or teasing like the feature that you provide or your like unique selling point is something that you can still do in the product to tease that. So the last thing I kind of have on here, oh, actually, this is kind of a fun question. So SEO, there's just kind of a divide on like whether or not it's the way to go, because you can obviously like grow through social. We're seeing like kind of a resurgence of uh, Twitter, like you're, I'm seeing like people doing LinkedIn really well. And so there's different ways to grow. And this is what I tell everyone of there's like just not one right way to do it. But in your opinion, if you're at a fast growth company, early stage startup, and you uh, are tasked with, you know, getting those like immediate results, as well as the, the long term, do you invest in SEO still? And what is that balance to still be able to get immediate results? Or do you? Yeah, this is interesting, because just before I talked about how we spent six months doing just one thing, and during which there was no evident ROI. So there is a little bit more to the story than that, which is, I think SEO is obviously, as you said, you know, you grow in different ways and SEO is one of many available distribution methods and it takes time to grow, but once it grows, it keeps growing. And more importantly, it keeps growing in the background while you do other stuff. So even if you're just focusing on SEO for a month or whatever, you can still distribute it elsewhere in smaller snippets on social, or you can even use paid advertising or newsletters. And this goes back to the idea of having an editorial element or like a controversial take or something to it. Because I think personally, I'm not one to read a listicle of the 15 best pieces of software for X. If Even if you post it on LinkedIn or Twitter, I don't think that's the most interesting approach to it. But if you've written a listicle, but you've given it an editorial twist of some sort of something that makes it slightly more interesting and slightly more appealing, then I can read it. So you publish that, it's going to rank, it's going to grow in the background. In the meantime, you're advertising it somewhere else. It catches people's attention. So you have both the short-term spike and you don't have the flat line of nope, but you actually have the, the growth line, if you want, after the initial enthusiasm from social maybe decays a little bit. So, yeah, I, I think percentage wise, like if you want to think about the balance, I don't know. Like, I think product that SEO, if done well, is a reliable driver of traffic. It may not be enough to build a brand because, again, because it's distributed via SEO, it only captures demand that is already there, but it doesn't generate anything on top of it. It doesn't build your brand. So, you may want to think about other stuff that builds a brand and perhaps speaks a bit more immediately to the heart or, you know, to, to something more human, if you want. Or again, if you take a controversial take to your SEO content, it does both at the same time. And that's the best place to be. 
Yeah, I think that's a solid answer. So to, to sum it up in marketing, there's a brand and there's a demand element, like, but the way that you can kind of solve for both is you can start with pillar content. And so for me, whether or not that is uh, SEO content in like the written format, if it is a uh, YouTube video, like in a longer format, if it's a podcast like this, if you start with long form content, then it's easier to turn it into other formats, right? And so for this podcast, like we could turn it into a, a blog, right? If I was still marketing to marketers, then there's a way to pull in like the product in there if I'm still doing marketing work. And so I'd, you know, I'd be able to turn that into a blog and I'd be able to turn those into social posts. But there's just different ways you can slice it and that you can start with a blog and then you can create a video version of that and you can steal that audio for a podcast. And so, but I think the important thing is like starting with some sort of pillar content that's easily broken down into smaller formats, then that can be a little bit more instant in the distribution. Like now you, you have something that you can distribute through email, you can distribute through social and you're able to satisfy both sides of like the long-term play and like the short-term play. But you also bring up a good point of it's a different mindset still of, of brand and, and kind of what scrollers are looking for versus what searchers are looking for. So also keeping that in mind and realizing that they are usually different departments in the marketing department for a reason. There's different segments to, um, to solve kind of like different problems. But I love that approach to it is ultimately marketing is an investment. I think that's a good takeaway for folks here. So what do you think uh, gets in the way of people implementing this tactic? I'm sure some people just may not have heard of it at all. And maybe that's the thing. But what do you see as like the biggest barrier for people trying this? Yeah, so back in 2017, I hadn't really seen it. When I saw it done at Ahrefs, I thought, oh, that's great. Why haven't I seen this elsewhere? Why is nobody else doing it? So I think one big thing that gets in the way is just not knowing about it. The second thing that gets in the way is, I think there is a perception that this kind of content might appear salesy. I feel like as content marketers are trained to not talk about the products until the very end, as if talking about the products somehow pollutes or dilutes or, you know, our content, which is definitely the mindset I was in before, because again, I hadn't really seen it done any, anywhere else. But then when you look at Ahrefs, which I still think is one of the best examples out there, it doesn't come across as salesy at all. It comes across as really seamlessly integrated within the larger narrative. And it comes across as really helpful. And actually that really gave me pause at the beginning because I feel like a lot of the time content marketers default to treating the product as an afterthought for whatever reason. And the result of it actually is that if you as a marketer yourself are already treating the product as an afterthought, you're inviting the customer to do exactly the same. Like you cannot expect the customer to be excited or into a product that you're not even really showcasing a lot of enthusiasm for because you're not really actively talking about it anywhere. So I think what gets in the way is the perception that talking about the product is salesy. And if you're doing it wrong, it is definitely going to come across as salesy, right? So if you're just pushing a product just to have it in and sort of forcing its way in when it doesn't make sense in the larger narrative, yes, it is going to come across as you trying too hard and you being too salesy and it is going to fail. But if you're taking the approach of really putting the customer first and thinking, I have a product that can help with this problem that they have. I can help them solve it right here and right now if I just show them a little bit of how it's done. 
then I think it's not sales at all. It's really helpful, actually. And I wish then at this point more marketers were doing it. So you don't have any surprises when you decide to sign up for the tool because you've already understood what it looks like and what it can do for you. And you already know that it's going to be great. I mean, I feel like I learned how to use Ahrefs long before I signed up for Ahrefs, right? Because I had seen it so many times on their blog. I kind of felt comfortable about it. Whereas, you know, there are other tools that I have no idea what they look like. What happens when I pay them, I don't know, $100 a month? Well, I don't know. We'll see what the dashboard looks like and I hope it looks good. So it's a very different approach, I think. And I encourage you content marketers who are listening to give it a try. Yeah, I think that's perfect to end on because it's anyone that's looking for a new job or, you know, in between jobs and is just trying to flesh out what's the best company for them. And this is a big part of the decision of do you believe in the product, right? Do you think that the product is useful? And if you do, like then your content is going to be more authentic because you're able to speak to it and just be honest, like in your content of how it's helpful because you understand how it's helpful and you believe in it. And so I think it comes across when that's the case and when there's kind of like that intersection of the right person that's writing about it, like a product that actually solves something and then content that's able to communicate that well. So for the very last thing I have on here is just what advice would you give to marketers who are wanting to launch a scalable product-led content strategy? Okay, a few steps. First, look at how people are doing it. So you understand this line between being helpful and being salesy or pushy. So look at Ahrefs, look at Hotjar, maybe Sprout Social, other companies like that. And second, start small. Start from what you already have. See if there are opportunities to retweak the narrative of existing content you have to bring some of your product in. So one example I give often is this. There is an employee management software company called 15.5. I love their product. They have really good features for teammates to give feedback to one another. But if you look at their content, you wouldn't know that these features are there because they have chosen the approach of having either a CTA at the bottom of the page or sending you via link to a product page where you eventually can see this feature in action. And I always think that it's a little bit of a waste because they could just show you this great piece of functionality right there on the page and it would be much more impactful. So this is what I say to other content marketers. If you're starting from something already, try to optimize it instead of having to dream up the new machine, you know, you don't have to go from zero to 100. Right now, you can just go from zero to one to two, and then slowly make your way up to new content when you have, you know, the time and the skills and the resources at your disposal. Yeah, thanks for just letting people know that even though this seems like we're talking about, you know, pillar content and, you know, this big investment, six months, but there probably is content on your site right now that could be optimized and that is worthy like of this approach. And so starting there, I think is a smart idea. So yeah, lastly, we're just coming up on time here. So where should people go to learn more about you and also Wildbit? So I run a newsletter called Content Folks that you can find at contentfolks.substack.com. If you're a content marketer, writer, or editor, I talk about content marketing and how to create content that serves an audience and makes a difference. This week, I joined a new company. However, it's called Wildbit. So if you are interested in running or being part of profitable companies that prioritize people, work remotely, and have a four-day-a-week work week, Wildbit is a great resource for all that kind of content. So you can see it at wildbit.com and start imagining a different way to do business. 
I like a good CTA just right there. Lastly, uh, just thank you for coming on and just walking us through those different steps. Like I've certainly like learned some new ways that I can think about implementing this. And I hope the rest of you guys have too. So that's all for now. And uh, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Content Logistics. This episode is produced by Motion, a done-for-you B2B podcasting agency for busy marketers. If you liked what you heard, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.